Welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Report, modern insights from biopharma and medtech leaders. On this podcast, you'll hear from our experts in life science development, commercialization, and investment banking. Along with experts from our network of biotech and medtech executives, physicians, bankers, and strategists who excel at guiding global life science companies and their investors through complex decisions. Join our conversation at the intersection of science and business. Here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Back Bay's Life Science Report, our new monthly podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. I'm Jonathan Gertler, the managing partner and CEO of Back Bay Life Science Advisors here in Boston. Life science development changes remarkably quickly. We've launched this podcast so that we can share brief but important updates with all of you, and we really appreciate your being here with us today. Today, my guest on the podcast is my partner and colleague of many years, Pete Bach. Pete's managing director here at Back Bay. We got him years ago from his postdoc, and we're thrilled to be able to do so. And over the eight or nine years that he's been with us, he's just been a wonderful contributor. His background is in cellular, molecular, and biochemical research and immunology, immuno-oncology, and he has a real expertise as well in infection and its treatment. Pete's research in immuno-oncology began when he was a graduate student at Dartmouth Medical School, where he got his PhD, and he later continued at an MIT, where he was an American Cancer Society postdoc fellow at the Koch Institute of Integrative Cancer Research. Here at Back Bay, he's led a diverse portfolio of projects. He focuses on liquidity planning, prioritization, positioning, strategic franchise building, M&A and licensing strategy, and buy-side diligence. And as is true of all of our strategy consultants, works very closely with our investment banking team on their transactional execution as well. Pete recently published in Stat News uh, an article entitled, Investment in Antimicrobials Was Up in 2020, But Much Work Remains. Certainly true of all of biotech, but especially true, we think, in antimicrobials. And we're going to discuss that today. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. And the kind introduction. How could I not be kind (laughs) after all these years of working together? But good. Hey, so Pete, traditionally, and I know you've been in the thick of this, the anti-infective space was, to put it politely, incredibly difficult. And a lot of different things that were brought to bear on that space. And then, in addition, vaccines, which, as we know, have been just remarkably front and center, not only in the financial markets, but in the media, was also, if not equally difficult, perhaps even more difficult. Tell us a little bit about that historically. We'd love your insights. Sure. And it's been one of the, well, you know, most difficult to shepherd clients along, you know, through some of the strategic questions that were you know, helping them address it's, it's, you know, also been one of the most, you know, intellectually rewarding to try to help them navigate. And, you know, over the past, you know, at least since I've been in the industry, since lacking, uh, since leaving academia, um, you know, it's been quite difficult for a lot of these companies as, as you certainly alluded to. And, and for a variety of different reasons, you know, based on, you know, the, the various companies, um, focus. And, you know, as you alluded to, you know, vaccines, um, you know, historically very, very difficult, certainly for, for sort of pre-proof of concept companies that were help helping think through partnering and liquidity strategy, you know, mainly because there was just a dearth of, of consolidators that had an interest in the space. 
And so, you know, helping them think through, you know, their exit strategy at the end of the day, there were only a handful of people in the Rolodex, you know, that, that we could call up and, and get their perspective on, you know, thinking about the therapeutic side of things, you know, certainly there were some bright spots, you know, in chronic viral diseases, obviously the, the hepatitis space, you know, much has been written about that with some successful drugs and, you know, Gilead's story with Silvaldi. But, you know, one of the, the most, you know, dire areas or most difficult areas in drug development was that was the antibacterial space, you know, and for them, it, it was really a perfect storm of a, of a number of issues, you know, an increasingly genericized market year after year and, you know, a convergence of really where the highest unmet need patient population being found in a clinical setting where the reimbursement dynamics didn't exactly favor um, novel or, or higher priced therapeutic development. And that's in hospital where the reimbursement dynamics really dictate, you know, physicians choosing the, you know, the least expensive option. Now, you know, interest, interestingly, and I just want to ask this question, I'm going to step out of the, the development sector for a second and into just a clinical dynamics. You have two opposing factors going on, and I'd love you to comment on these one is that there, we all know this, there's an enormous overprescription of antibiotics. There are criteria for doctors to prescribe that are never really adhered to. There's consumer demand that can drive antibiotic prescription. It creates the horrendous problem of antibiotic resistance and multi-drug antibiotic resistance. And then you have a dynamic with low price overprescription coupled to inability to actually develop or be supported for the development in terms of investment return um, for those drugs that might actually be critical in the setting of multi-drug antibiotic resistance and specific need due to much more severe infections. I know this is sort of, it's a little off topic in some regards, but it's really been part of the dynamic in the space. And I wonder if you comment on that. It, it, it's sort of interesting hear you hearing you characterize that. It's almost a perverse situation in which the commercial dynamics in some respects are actually driving the clinical unmet need, right? Because the availability of, of antibiotics at, you know, relatively um, low cost, it, it wasn't like there was many incentives for physicians to restrict access or, or even from payers. And, you know, so, so there wasn't a lot of thought going in to prescriptions, which basically, you know, uh, begot a lot of the issues with with multidrug resistance. And, you know, thankfully, what has been happening in the field is, I, I think, a greater appreciation for issues around drug resistance. And you've seen, you know, even five, six years ago, uh, the CDC and the WHO really starting to ring the alarm bells with certain, um, you know, bugs of particular concern and certain antibiotic resistance profiles. And, you know, I, I think health systems are increasingly, you know, making efforts to, to rein that in. Um, certainly, um, you know, antibiotic stewardship in hospitals is becoming increasingly uh, of, of import. And we've seen that come, uh, come a long way, but it, it, it really has been a, you know, 
convergence of a couple of issues um, that has really brought this to to the fore that, you know, spans clinical issues as well as, you know, sort of the the commercial questions, which at the end of the day is something that, you know, colors all of this, especially as, as our clients were trying to make, you know, make the business case for their, you know, development programs. Great. So I'm going to leverage for this podcast what I know is your, and I say this with affection and respect, technology wonkishness. Will you let me say that? Yeah. I've been called worse. Well, that's (laughs) not by me, but certainly. Um, But talk to us a little bit as well, because, you know, certainly the antifungal space has, you know, continues to stand, stand alone in certain ways because it's a critical, critical issue that's outside of this larger mainstream. The antiviral space we know has seen great success, but we're also seeing new technology development, new strategies for developing means of dealing with highly resistant infections or highly dangerous infections. Can you review for everybody what you're seeing that is promising that's out there that deviates from the typical development pathways or the typical technology underpinnings? Sure. Uh, Maybe take the development programs off to the side because I I think there has been advances, certainly from a regulatory perspective, about, you know, the FDA being a little bit more um, flexible with how sponsors are allowed to to run clinical trials, you know, t- traditionally it's been the case you're developing a drug um, for an infection based on organ system, you know, be it pneumonia, be it you know a UTI, and given the need, there's been an increasing flexibility from the FDA to consider almost you know bug or resistance profile specific trials. But but leaving that aside, I, I think you've started to see you know, people sort of broadening out the available armamentarium beyond traditional small molecules. And I'll, I'll give sort of a few few examples. Um, I think one that you've seen clearly started to deploy within the um, COVID pandemic is monoclonal antibodies, you know, and, and certainly, you know, traditionally in the realm of autoimmunity and oncology, um, for more chronic diseases, uh, certainly, you know, therapeutic areas where there are less commercial constraints. You've seen a lot of activity there. I think you've seen a lot of interesting innovation on, you know, developing and selecting antibodies based on, you know, uh, convalescent patients, you know, and some interesting technologies from microfluidics, ability to isolate specific B cells and monoclonal antibody clones to sort of quickly and rapidly develop in the context of the pandemic uh, therapeutic antibodies. And certainly there's been some development um, in the antibody space for uh, bacteria as well. I think some of the other areas that we've seen is, is the microbiome. Right. And, you know, in in any sort of ecological niche, you'll see uh, uh, viruses um, making waves and and bacteria have their own viruses. And so using phage, which are basically bacterial viruses to to treat uh, difficult diseases, you're seeing a lot of activity there. And also, um, you know, use of good bacteria to sort of repopulate or, you know, 
elbow out uh, sort of the bag of actors. And one area you've seen a lot of activity is in, um, you know, microbial transplant for in the colon uh, for Clostridium difficile um, infections. And I think lastly, you're 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 starting to see even you know going further afield is is cell therapies. Um, and I think deploying cell therapies in the context of some viral diseases um, has been of note. And you've seen some companies such as um, Alivir comes to mind using cell therapies in the context of uh, transplant patients, um, sort of a, a, a context where you're willing to maybe think about a more innovative, costly approach to, to, save, um, to save a graft. Terrific. No, thanks. Thanks for that thorough review. And let me ask you one question that has to do perhaps with the rich world, poor world issue with regard to infection as well. Um, and, it, and it will relate to the financing path. And, and I'd love to also call out our friends and partners in a variety of places in the foundation world and in the investment world that are focused on combating infection, but also recognize that the the less the lower income world frankly needs help just with some of the more most basic of medicines that's not an investment hypothesis that's typical for the higher income world where high technology is developed can you talk a little bit about the foundation support for anti-infectives broadly given that schism and that problem in healthcare delivery equity. And then let's go into the specific funding paths and partnerships for those um, companies focusing in perhaps on Europe and North America and the higher income world, as we'd refer to it. Yeah. And certainly you see folks like the, you know, like the Gates Foundation making inroads here. Um, and, and for them, it's a very sort of Let's call it multimodal approach across all the funding mechanisms that they have from, you know, being able to bring uh, people, you know, clean water and better sanitation, which in the Western world we, we take for granted. Um, and certainly, you know, novel approaches to be able to distribute vaccines um, for diseases, again, that, that doesn't necessarily impact uh, the Western world and sort of breaking, again, the, the, the cold chain. You know, and certainly we, we've heard a lot about that in the context of um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine to be able to increase distribution. So, so I think from you know the developing world, it, it's sort of you know, multifold. It's it's not only from the therapy standpoint because there are a lot of initiatives, for instance, in in TB um, to develop new therapeutics, and Gates Ventures certainly is involved in that. But broader initiatives to even prevent individuals from, you know, getting an infection to begin with. And, and, you know, moving from there more to some of the, the, it's called bad actors in the, that are of concern in the Western world. Um, there's been a lot of innovative approaches to help, let's call it grease the wheels pre-commercially for a lot of these companies in, in a few, um, programs come to mind, uh, you know, here in Boston, uh, out of Boston University, uh, Carbex, uh, which provides funding uh, for various programs across modalities um, and types of technologies for high impact infections of unmet need. Um, the Wellcome Trust in the UK, certainly taking a similar approach. And then our friends at Novo, 
with the uh, repair fund that has made a commitment for early stage um, uh, investment into you know um, technologies that are going to address this these infections that that have been a priority not only for the CDC but for the for the WHO. But it's really that last you know a lot of these in the term of art in the uh, in the field or the push push incentives to basically you know get these therapies along to commercial stage. There's still a lot of issues post-commercial, which we can talk about if we have time. But even within those push incentives, there's still gaps that are trying to be filled, sort of later stage clinical development. You know, these companies previously were sort of left trying to get funding either from the public markets or from venture capital, which was difficult. So you've even seen, um, you know, companies stepping up in sort of this quasi-philanthropic model. Uh, And certainly the AMR Action Fund comes to mind that's been founded recently uh, through a consortium of of companies and some of the other uh, institutions that I just mentioned to sort of fund that later stage of development uh, along the way. So Pete, you spend a lot of time working with companies across a variety of sectors, but of course have spent a good deal of time in the anti-infective space broadly and the vaccine space. When companies come to you and they have a vision for being able to take a technology forward, and it can be a, a disease that is less common and more threatening, or it can be a disease that is broader, what do you what do you advise them in terms of being ready? to go seek the funding, and how do you match up their technology to the type of funding that they should be pursuing? Yeah, and and I think it, it's, it's been interesting because I, I think the, the technologies that we've seen come across our, our desk here in the, you know, call it the broadly anti-infective space have been, you know, every bit as interesting and innovative as, as other areas, you know, and, and maybe even even more so because there's less me too um, technologies trying to um, you know get a a small slice of a very very big pie and so it, it's been interesting because the approaches are quite novel the science is sound it's spun out of great academic institutions in many instances very strong initial seed funding or series a funding from known investors and it's just getting that next, story right and we always use the phrase beginning with the end in mind and and i can't think of i can't think of any space that we frequently work in where immediately the question is going to turn to pricing reimbursement and market even for a pre-commercial asset and you know usually those questions we defer you know, if you're looking at something for psoriasis or melanoma, you can defer those questions till you're at phase two or phase three. You know, if you're talking to um, a partner or venture, but those questions are immediately critical. And certainly there are externalities to companies that affect them. There's been a lot of work trying uh, to rethink how a lot of these agents are being um, paid for, and really, I, I still am thinking about the the antibiotics that are delivered in an acute phase. I'm sort of leaving aside the chronic um, outpatient viral diseases, and 
you know, beginning to think through creative ways, either from a patient selection or, um, you know, where this therapy could be deployed inpatient versus outpatient, beginning to think through that story sooner rather than later, because invariably it's going to be the first question that a VC or a partner is going to be asking the company, you know, for better or for worse. Well, it actually it raises the point, and as we you know come to the to the close of the podcast, it raises the point of your analysis and of the of the stat piece that we alluded to at the um, during the introduction um, and your earlier comment that commercialization is the real challenge. So, as you think through what you wrote about, and you think through much work that needs to be done to really bring anti-infective therapies to the real forefront, despite the gains that have been made during the pandemic. What would you summarize as the most surprising things or the most important highlights that you found when you were researching and writing the piece? Yeah, at, at a high level, you know, I, I was interested in seeing all the 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 buzz around vaccines and and money being poured into those companies, as if there was any other spillover, you know, into antibiotics, antifungals. You know, given that you sort of hear in the lay press how the COVID pandemic has made some of these infections um, worse with, you know, immunocompromised people or with depleted lung function, you're, you're seeing a lot of these other infections pop up. And if, you know, those sorts of technologies were starting to see the same traction or interest from the investment community that, that vaccines were. And so, we look back at, over the past few years, um, you know, broadly in anti-infective technologies. So vaccines, um, antivirals, antibiotics, antifungals. Not surprisingly, you know, 2020, um, you know, saw a huge influx of, of capital into those spaces as there were across, across the board. Um, you know, but sort of taking a double click into the antibiotic and antifungal space, there was a pretty substantial uptick last year, um, you know, which was, which was surprising. Um, but, you know, looking into the companies that actually got funded, it was still very niche companies or niche plays where you could make a pretty strong argument for the business case in today's environment. So should nothing change with reimbursement of these agents, you could still make a pretty strong business case for their use. Um, you know, I'm thinking about antifungals and, and companies like Amplex and F2G, you know, the, um, the former of which was recently purchased by, by Pfizer and other sort of niche, either regional um, or novel modalities within antibiotics or antifungals. And if you sort of hived off those interesting cases, you know, the investment money was still the same for the most part, you know, as in the trailing few years. So really, you know, there's some glimmers of hope that, that people are starting to to see areas or or hear, I think, the story that you can make a commercial case if you think through carefully where you're going to be deploying these drugs. But I think still there isn't going to be the sea change uh, in the field uh, unless there's um, you know, substantial changes in, in how uh, these agents are, are, are paid for, which I think is a topic for another day. It, 
It is absolutely a topic for another day, but an extremely important one. So we'll we'll bring it to a close. I'll I'll remind the audience that your your um, stat article, again entitled "Investment in Antimicrobials," was up in 2020, but much work remains. is actually available on our website as well. And Pete, it's been just as always wonderful to talk to you about this and fascinating to discuss. And I truly thank you for joining me and for your expert leadership on this subject. Likewise. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, if you'd like to learn more about, oh, it's always my pleasure. Um, and it has been for a lot of years now. So again, if you'd like to read Pete's article in STAT or learn more about Back Bay Life Science Advisors, please visit our website at www.bblsa.com. And thank you all for tuning into this week's Life Science Report. Thank you for listening to the Back Bay Life Science Report, brought to you by the Back Bay Life Science Advisors Strategy and Investment Banking Teams. To learn more, please visit us at bblsa.com and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. For show notes or links to items mentioned in the show, visit the podcast page on our website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening source. 